In your Bibles or in the Pew Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, if you have been with us, you know we're marching through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter, and we've been for a number of weeks in chapter 13, and chapter 13 is filled with uh, parables, seven parables, almost all of them about a very similar theme, that is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, which is the nature and the way in which uh, Christ's rule and reign, uh, the authority and the, uh, and the power of Jesus Christ are, is manifest and evidenced and takes shape in the world. And we've come to the seventh parable in Matthew 13, and it's not only the last parable, but it actually provides a logical conclusion to all seven. There's really a progression through uh, all seven, and this provides a conclusion to them. Because here in the parable of the net, the parable that we will consider, uh, Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of heaven, Christ's rule and reign, not only breaks into history, it not only guides and shapes history, but that this king and this kingdom will bring an end to history, which is what we see in the parable of the net. And so he will cause his disciples, and he's causing us to look ahead at what is coming, that that would give shape uh, to our lives today. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50, the parable of the net. Listen now to God's word. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus touches on a reality that affects all of humanity throughout all of history, and that's the reality that we know of as time. Time. Uh, We're all affected by time. Certainly we are affected by the limitation of time that we have here on this earth. Uh, Generations come, generations go. Uh, We are compared to mist that is here for a brief time, grass that sprouts up and then withers away. Uh, But we're also affected by time by the way in which we relate to time. You can take history for example, past time. It has a significant shape upon our lives. Uh, Not only the past events of our lives, some of those events may be wonderful things in our memory, Uh, but it may be past things in our lives that have a crippling effect on us even today. But not only past events in our lives, but even more important are God's redemptive acts in history that have a a transforming effect upon the Christian and uh, indeed all of history, at the center of which are the events of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and uh, Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the New Testament church. Uh, We will partake of the Lord's Supper uh, toward the end of our service. Among other things, what are we doing? We are remembering something in the past, uh, an event, uh, the crucifixion, the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But it's not just the past that is to shape our thinking and our countenance and our our living. It's also the present. Uh, The present day has a tremendous effect. 
It matters. That's why we read in the scriptures, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, Psalm 95, we heard it quoted earlier in Sunday school. Today, if you hear his voice, today, do not harden uh, your hearts. Or Paul in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, making the best use of the time, redeeming, sanctifying the time that you have. So the past is important, the present day is important, but in this parable, what is Jesus doing? He's drawing the attention of his disciples and our attention to the future. What he calls in verse 49, the end of the age. This is the end of history as we understand time at the second coming of our Lord. This is the consummation of all things. And Jesus uses this picture of a net thrown into the sea, gathering fish of every kind in this kind of grand, comprehensive sweep of all of history and all mankind. The net, in fact, as you consider chapter 13 and all the parables, sweeps around all the parables that we have considered and brings them to a close. So the sower, at the beginning of the chapter, in the parable of the sower, he's done sowing seeds. There's no more proclamation of the gospel. The seed has been thrown broad and wide, and it is done. The evil one, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, is done sowing weeds in the world. Uh, The mustard seed and the leaven, they're done growing and maturing. That hidden treasure, the pearl of great price that we considered last week, they're done being discovered. There's no more revelation of it. We come to the end, the end of the age. And so Jesus is pointing his disciples not only to the end as a point of fact, but that that end might shape the way that they're considering the the living of their lives now. And sometimes it's simply difficult to look beyond the present. Sometimes we don't want to look beyond the present because we enjoy the season of life that we happen to be in at the given time. We're not wanting it to pass. Or because we may be living in the midst of a tremendous trial in our lives, a loss, a physical ailment. It's hard for us to look beyond the present. Uh, Just a few years ago, I had met a a fellow Christian at the YMCA, uh, a woman, she had been diagnosed with cancer, uh, breast cancer. She had been asking for prayer. She learned I was a Christian and a pastor, and uh, her cancer was in a partial remission. And one day at the end of a workout, I saw her and was asking, how are things going? And she said, "Uh, they're going pretty well. She said, I'm living every day as if it were my last day. And then she said, "That's, that's in fact how we should all live. And I remember thinking momentarily about that and saying, I think that's an admirable way to live. I said, however, if I was living today as if it were my last day, I would not be here at the Y. (laughs) And that's true. As much as I enjoy working out, if I was living that day as if it were my last, it would not make the agenda. It's hard to live that way. We have responsibilities. We have chores. We have things that wouldn't make the list if if we knew it was our last day. Uh, But Jesus is doing something very significant. He's bringing us beyond our temporary life here on earth to the very end. The last day, in some ways we could say the most decisive day where there's the sorting out of all people. 
And that's what we see as the picture, the sorting out of the good and the bad fish. And what do we see? What characterizes this sorting out, this final day, this judgment day? Well, for one, it is exhaustive. It is comprehensive in its sweep. It includes all of humanity. Verse 47, he says, The kingdom of heaven, it's like a net thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. The net is the kingdom. The sea is the world in the picture. And the net sweeps all of the world together. That's very similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. There the kingdom was compared to a field, God's world. And in this world, both wheat and weeds grow up together. Here the picture is not of a field, it's of a net in the sea, and it's sweeping up all fish together. And this is a helpful picture. The disciples understand this picture of fish. They were, by trade, some of them fishermen. Remember back in chapter 4, when Jesus first came upon Peter and Andrew, what were they doing? It says they were casting a net into the sea. They knew about nets. They understood this picture. Uh, The net that they were casting, though, is actually a different kind of net. It's a different word. They were casting from the shore. It was a small net. Uh, But this is a different kind of net. The one Jesus is referring to is a drag net. It's pulled by a boat. It has weights on the bottom. It would be pulled out, some estimate, nearly half a mile, and they would circle around, creating this cone, dragging all kinds of fish to the shore. Uh, The Sea of Galilee has 18 to 20 different species of fish. So it's a great picture because the cast is net wide and the cast does not discriminate. It brings everyone in. It sweeps everyone up. No one's escaping. And I think there's a relevant point for us uh, here. In a day and age in which people are categorized in so many different ways, identified in so many different ways by so many different factors, Age, gender, race, and preferences, and occupation, political affiliation, socioeconomics. Jesus is doing something, I think, in our culture that, quite frankly, is very offensive. He sweeps everyone up, and he divides all people into two groups, and only two groups. There's only two categories. He says, when the net was full... Men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. The bad and the good fish. They represent the evil and the righteous. In verse 47 and 48, you have the parable that he gives, and then 49 and 50 is his explanation of the parable. So the the good and bad fish represent the evil and righteous in the world and all people fit into these two categories. And we've seen this throughout Matthew's gospel. That's been quite an emphasis. The, the two ways, the narrow gate and the wide gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Uh, the healthy tree and the bad tree in chapter 7. The sheep and the wolves, chapter 10. The wheat and the weeds. The late James Montgomery Boyce said, not only is the final day fixed and certain, but the grounds upon which we are judged is fixed. It will be whether we have received the good seed of the gospel. 
whether we've believed in Christ, whether we've gained the hidden treasure. So I ask, he says, in which group are you? If you are not with Christ now, you will be without Christ then. If you are with him now, you will be with him in the day of judgment. But notice as well the kind of day it is that's described. Verse 49, it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come, separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The emphasis in this particular parable has, is more upon the evil than on the righteous and what happens to the wicked and to the evil, those outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not sugarcoat the reality of hell. How important it is that we have exposure through the scriptures that we see and we hear and we are warned of hell itself. Uh, Jesus not only speaks more about hell than anyone else in the scriptures, but he speaks about, maybe surprising to us, he speaks about hell more than he does heaven and in greater detail. He describes it in Luke 16 as a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, a place of unquenchable fire. Later in Matthew 25, in the sheep and the goats, a place of outer darkness. In Mark 9, a place where the worm does not die. And here, in Matthew 13, a fiery furnace, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just over two years ago, months prior to R.C. Sproul's death, he was asked the question, uh, several questions, uh, what doctrine uh, troubles you the most? What doctrine do you, have you struggled with the most? And uh, if I were to guess, I would have anticipated that he would say something about eschatology and the details of things unfolding or the inner, you know, inner workings of the Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. But he very quickly answered, hell. Hell. Not a struggle over the existence of hell, but a struggle over the dreadful reality of people eternally suffering. Suffering of the worst sorts without end. Even now, as we sit in this place, as we learn in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. Now, the scripture addresses this subject of hell not only to teach us and to instruct us, but to work in us a godly and holy fear in order to deter people from sin and the path of destruction. And that's what our confession says at the, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 33, on the last judgment. It says that Christ would have us certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment to deter all men from sin and to console the godly in their adversity. You think about when children, young children, are playing around a, a campfire and they're putting sticks in there and swinging them around. A, a, a loving father, a loving mother warns them of this and the dangers and the potential consequences. Right? But this is not a campfire that Jesus is talking about. This has eternal consequences and eternal torment. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1. When, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming 
fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And while we live in a, not only in a culture that so much rejects the notion of a vengeful God, but even in a land among many churches that soften the judgment of God and the reality of hell, we should remember that this particular doctrine God has used powerfully in converting the lost from the early church to the present day. We saw it very much in the Great Awakening in these surrounding lands. It happened very powerfully at an evening worship service on July 8th, 1741. It was a guest preacher, about 38 years old. He stepped up into a friend's pulpit one evening. It was in Enfield, Connecticut. His text was the Lord's words in Deuteronomy 32. To me belongeth vengeance and judgment for the day when their foot shall slip, for the day of calamity is at hand. And then the preacher introduced his subject, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was, of course, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, His sermon has become the most well-known sermon in the history of our nation. And I think it's fitting in a text uh, in which we are considering this fiery furnace, an eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, perhaps to hear some of Edwards' words. If you've not read that sermon, I would commend it to you. If you know it, you know some of the vivid pictures that Edwards paints in that sermon. During the sermon, testimony, uh, people give testimony that there were times he had to pause. There was such shrieking from people. He says, the devil is waiting for them. Hell's mouth is open for them. The flames gather and flash around them, longing to take them and swallow them up. This is to wake up the unconverted in the church. All of your health and personal care, all of your best schemes, all of your own righteousness would no better support you than a spider's web would stop a falling rock. The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string and justice is aimed at the heart. Justice is aimed at the heart. I want you to hear a few other words from another sermon of Edwards as he describes what is happening even now, as he comments on Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, those suffering even now in hell, he says this, they that have worn out so many ages in hell are never near any end to their misery. The time is very long that they have suffered, many tedious days, tedious years, tedious ages, one after another. They must wear out another space of time and another after. Soon the time will come when they will have worn out millions and millions of years. Yes, as many such ages as there are particles of dust on the earth, and even then, no mercy. Therefore, take warning, he says. These words, they reflect the words of our Lord Jesus. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
He is calling us and causing us to look ahead at the end of the story, at the end of what is coming, where time is moving. And I want to bring us to the end of that story. In Revelation, toward the very end, in Revelation 20, we're presented with this picture of people, great and small, standing before the great white throne of God's judgment. And there, as people come before this throne, books are being opened. And what are in those books? They're all the deeds of people. All of humanity, it seems. And all their acts. All the things they have done. Can you imagine all that you have done on display? There they are in these books. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 12, they were judged according to all that they had done. But then you keep reading and you learn about another book. It's the book of life. And it says, Then another book was opened, the book of life. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life containing the names of the righteous. This is what Jesus mentions, the evil and the righteous. There are names in the book of life. They are the righteous. They're righteous not because of the good that they have done. Ultimately, they are righteous because of the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. God's grace in robing His people in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul had discovered in Philippians chapter 3. Remember Paul's words. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that I may know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection. The names of the people of God in the book of life, those who have been robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, those whose sins have been forgiven, those who are hidden with God and Jesus Christ, that I may know Him. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Not only do you know about Him, but do you know Him? Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them. They follow Me. And I lay down My life for the sheep. R.C. Sproul said, Clearer visions of hell cause in us a greater love for God and for others. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name, do great works in Your name, cast out demons in Your name? And I will say to them, Away from Me, evildoers, I never knew You. We're going to be singing at the close of our service, that hymn, How sweet and awesome is that place. It says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear Your voice and enter while there is room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come.
We heard it earlier in Sunday school. In Zephaniah, I think it's one of the perhaps takeaways from hearing this passage from our Lord Jesus. In Zephaniah 2, Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And indeed, we can have that assurance as we rest upon the Lord Jesus and what he has provided. And we should remember the net is not yet full. That day has not yet come. The end of the age is not yet. The sorting out has not yet occurred. And while the disciples and we who follow Christ today know that He is sovereign Lord, He has His elect, the disciples and we know we play a part. We play a part as instruments in the hands of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 10. Blessed are all those who call upon the name of the Lord. They shall be saved. But how will they call without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is a text that should draw us to consider the world around us. And the path that is coming. The path of destruction that is coming. That we may bring to them the glorious and wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this news in which we in Christ are hidden in the Lord, in His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the warning that is implied and comes through in this parable, that, Lord, we might be deterred, that we might seek You, that we might know and have the assurance of saving grace in Jesus Christ or what He has accomplished through His cross and resurrection. But Lord, may we have a, a sober mind, a clear mind about what You have revealed, about the reality that is to come, and the unfolding of history and the end of the age. Lord, that we might be a people who both seek You and love You with all of our heart, resting in Your grace, and a people who proclaim with boldness, with gentleness and with wisdom, this message of good news to the world around us. Lord, just as you have called us and brought us in, may we have that spirit and heart of hospitality toward the world around us. For we have the message of saving uh, grace. And so we praise you this day, Lord, for your word and its work in our lives by your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.